want us to turn again this week to 1 Kings chapter 18. We began studying here last prayer meeting at the prayer of Elijah. And I want us to look there again at the conclusion we often talk about and learn about the contest with the prophets of Baal. But the last part of this chapter gives us instruction on prevailing in prayer, the pattern for prevailing prayer. An invaluable book on the life of Elijah is a book by A.W. Pink called The Life of Elijah. And I have taken information from that book on on this particular lesson. It's such a, a blessing. And I would encourage all of you to read that book. It deals with just these few chapters in 1 Kings. But we receive so many teachings and blessings from the life of Elijah. Look there in verse 42 of 1 Kings chapter 18. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to, uh, to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down upon the earth and put his face between his knees and said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There's nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. And it came to pass at the seventh time that he said behold there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a a man's hand and he said go up and say unto Ahab prepare thy chariot and get thee down that the rain stop thee not and it came to pass in the meanwhile that the heaven was black with clouds and wind and there was a great rain and Ahab rode and, and remember this is rain after a long period of time of no rain And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Now, I'm not going to comment on the miracle of verse 46. Some would capitalize on that. Our study here is on prayer. But I want you to to note that who had the chariot and who was on foot and who beat who to Jezreel? Uh, the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and that makes all the difference in anything, doesn't it? Why is it that Elijah chose to ask the Lord to withhold rain? Was he being capricious? Was he trying to prove something or show himself? No, I want us to see that true prayer, a prayer that gets answered, is Bible prayer. When we ask what God intends to do, what God's will is to do, those prayers we can be assured of. We must learn this lesson as children of the Lord, that to ask what he willingly wants to give. And we'll talk more about that as we study tonight. But Elijah's praying to start with that God would withhold rain was based on something that God said. Now, if you read the record of 1 Kings, you might overlook that because there's not a reference there. But there is precedent for why Elijah is asking specifically for the Lord to withhold rain in judgment to his nation that had gone into idolatry. The Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 11, and in that second reading of the law, the Lord repeats and tells his people what to expect. He tells them how he will respond to their actions. If they go into sin, if they go after other gods, this is how I will respond to that. And so he says in first Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13, It shall come to pass, if ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, 
which I command you this day to love the Lord with all your, your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. I will give you rain of your land in a due season. The, the land of Canaan was a rich, fertile, uh, and, and blessed rain, uh, land of rain. He said, if you obey me and hearken to me, I will, I will give rain. The first rain and the latter rain. These were rains of, of, of very fertile rains and the har- to, to bring about the harvest. That thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thy oil. I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle. How necessary it was to have food for the livestock. That thou mayest eat and be full. That is God's will for his people in Canaan. I want you to have a rich, fertile land with all of your needs met. I will send rain for grass for your crops and, and also for your livestock. Then verse 16, with, with every blessing and promise, there's always a warning. And then verse 16 of Deuteronomy chapter 11, Take heed to yourselves that your heart be not deceived. Where are we deceived then? Our hearts are what deceive us. That's, the battle is there in our heart and our mind. We lean on our own understanding or our own feelings. And those are very dangerous things to do. Please don't let your heart be deceived. And I, I, we live in a land of deceived people today. They lean on their own understanding. They lean on their heart, their emotions. Don't be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then, if you do that, he says, Then the Lord's wrath be kindled upon you, against you, and he shut up the heaven, and that there be no rain, and that the land yield not her fruit, unless you perish quickly off the good land which the Lord giveth you. Therefore shall you lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and, and bind them for a sign upon your hand that they may frontlets between your eyes. The sad thing is that when God did send the famine, the seven years of famine, the, the majority of the people of Israel were so untaught in the word, were so spiritually ignorant, they didn't connect the dots. They didn't say, oh, this is what God promised would happen if we went into idolatry to serve other gods. So not only did they take a man of God to claim God's word and said, did you not say that you would withhold rain if your nation went into idolatry? And Lord, we have a king whose wife is the queen of, of, of the worshipers of Baal. There are idols everywhere, and you have not done what your word said. Now, God does not have a short memory. He doesn't get busy and forget things he needs to do. But he is waiting in his economy that he himself has designed for his children to claim his word and to use it as proof, as license, if you will, as the title deeds for all the things that God wants to do. Now, I have a deed to to, some pieces of property. Now, they're in my name. My wife's in my name. If somebody... Uh, on one is a vacant piece of property. If they decided to just to start building something, then I rode by there and saw that. What would I do? I would produce my claim, my deed, the legal description, and where I pay taxes on it every year. All those things I would produce as legal claims of the property that I own. And so when we come to the Lord to, to, to pray, to ask for blessing or to, for judgment even, Our praying must be based on biblical precedent. And this is what Elijah does. 
This is what all this whole contest with the prophets of Baal is about. They say they're God, that they have God powers. And Elijah is challenging that. No, they don't. Baal has no power whatsoever. Only the power that men subscribe to him. And he shows it. How many preachers, how many Christians would be so bold to say and to to put God to the test? Now, we don't put God to the test unless he tells us to. Our Lord told Satan that we don't get to choose the test. If Satan comes and says, jump off the pinnacle and see, you know, because God said he would give his angels charge the 91st Psalm to charge over thee lest you dash your foot against the stone. Yes, he has said that, if that takes place. But I don't jump off the building here claiming Psalm 91 because God hasn't told me to do that. And so what did Jesus tell Satan? I'm not going to do that because I, the Bible says also that thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. You see how people take scripture out of context and a lot of uh, name it, claim it kind of things, for lack of better words, they bind this and they claim this and they speak that. They have all this kind of rigmarole, they say, and it's not based on scripture. It's, ta- it's based on taking pieces and parts of verses and weaving together a straw house or a house of cards. But that's not what Elijah is doing here. God, you told your people before they ever came into the land of of, of promise that if they went into idolatry, this is what you would do. And so God responded to his word and to someone who dared believe his word in its context, how God said he would act, and bring it before him. The saints of yesteryear were, were different in so many ways. They didn't have radio or television or all the modern gadgets that we do, and we praise the Lord for all the technology. I'm not cursing those things. I'm just painting the picture as it was a hundred years ago, perhaps. They didn't have nearly as many seminars or retreats or things to occupy their time, even spiritually speaking, as we do. They may not have had what the modern church deems important or even necessary in many areas, but their work for the Lord and their worship of the Lord was bathed in persevering prayer. When public work is over, the private work of prayer begins, and it never ends. Ministers not only prepare and preach, but we must pray. Not only while preparing to preach, but after we've preached, the work really begins. It takes much time and effort to prepare to preach if you're really preparing to preach to study the word and to rightly divide it and find out if this is what it says. And, Lord, is this your word as it should be uh, presented? And in the study to go and then put it in, into some order that is easily understood and the principles can be uh, grasped by all people and to apply it. Then the work begins after that's delivered is to pray that it would be delivered to every heart in every condition of every heart. Sunday school teachers must not merely visit and, and teach and prepare audiovisual aids or crafts or uh, pictures to illustrate their lesson and il- uh, uh, illustrations, uh, object lessons, which are all very important and, and appropriate. But after the Bible is closed and the flannel graph is put away, we must pray. We pray that the Word of God has free course What do we mean by the word of God having free course? That nothing would block it. That nothing would hinder it from doing what it should do in every heart. People come into our classes and our services with stuff, baggage, thoughts, wayward thoughts, 
uh, problems, things that Satan would use to rob uh, their minds and hearts from receiving the word, we're to pray that God removes all that and that the ground would be prepared after it's been preached and taught to take root, that the evil one be thwarted in his tireless efforts to snatch away that precious seed that's been sown every time the word of God is opened. And, and we pray for ourselves. We, we think that the biggest pitfall for, for Christian workers or for any Christian is, is some great temptation to immorality or or other uh, testimony-damaging failure, but we must be on our guard, and we must constantly guard against spiritual pride. The devil loves to convince us of our own importance and and defiles our our best efforts to serve the Lord in that way. And so we must constantly come before the Lord and and ask him to use us, to work through us, to cleanse us, reminding ourselves that without him we are nothing and can do nothing. God alone can give the increase. Do you know that? We cannot give the increase. I was speaking with someone about gardening today, and in uh, a little herb garden that I planted for my wife, all around the border of it, I planted uh, flower, flowers from seed. And, of course, you know me, I go out there every day to measure and see how they're doing. And, and the amazing thing about it, I plant them all the same day, at the same time, same soil, same watering. And do you know that some, un, 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 I can't explain it, are higher than others? And some of the seeds, I know in every one of these little cubicles that I planted several seeds, I, I overdo it because I know that, you know, if I want a big increase, you know, just lavish it on. And some of the little cubicles, seed did not come forth at all. It's the same soil. I got it from the same compost pile. Same everything except some seed came up and some is about to bloom and others did absolutely nothing or pitifully. Now, how do we explain that? Only God can give the increase. Only God can make a seed die and germinate and, 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 and take life and come forth. And it's the same with spiritual fruit, spiritual seed in, to, to, to grow. I believe the Holy Spirit has left us here, these verses here for us, to give us the pattern of prevailing prayer. The showdown has been done. God has shown who, that he's a God in heaven in a very real and uh, inexplicable way. Fire coming down from heaven, licking up the sacrifice, burning the water through the soaked sacrifice and leaving not a remnant of it. It was a fire that could not have been produced by the charlatans and the magicians and the sorcerers and the prophets of Baal. Oh, they can do tricks and sleight of hand, but they couldn't do what Jehovah did. But the battle is not over with. We could go home after that and say, whew, yeah, there's a God in heaven. And I, my, that's a, that's a big deal. But the point is that the, the work was not done, was it? Because rain had not come. Only God can send rain. We're hearing it all around us this evening. And you can say what you will, but um, Washington cannot pass a law either for or against rain. <laughs> uh, the, the, the EPA, all the people in charge of all environmental things can do not one thing about rain. They seem to think so. They seem to be able to explain. But I'll guarantee you, when God wants to send a drought, a drought will come. And when he wants rain to come, a rain will come. Now, this particular rain in Israel was a rain of blessing in response to believing prayer. I want you to know that. James 5, 17 teaches us that Elijah was a man subject, uh, open, if you will, to, to like temptations, like passions as we are. 
And we see that. Not only does the Holy Spirit give us James as an example of prevailing prayer, but it goes on to tell us that, that Elijah got scared, didn't he? He was intimidated by Jezebel. He wanted to end his life. After all this great spiritual success, so James tells us that, but the Holy Spirit illustrates it for us in this account that he was subject to all the fears, temptations that you and I are. So great faith, believing faith, faith in, the, in God being able to answer his word does not mean that you will be unsusceptible to, to doubt at times, fear, and all else that could take place. He was subject to like passions as we are, our temptations, and yet he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain on purpose, that God's word be validated and God's name be vindicated. And it rained not on the earth for the space of three years and six months. He prayed again, and the heaven gave rain. Clearly in answer to prayer. If there was no other teaching in the scripture about how God answers prayer, this portion of scripture certainly does that. Elijah prayed, the heavens were shut up. Elijah prayed again, the heavens were open. And this was not because Elijah had so much power. Please don't put the focus on Elijah. Remember what the Holy Spirit tells us. He was a person just like you and me. It is the word of God that's powerful. It is the, the, the will of God that is all-consuming and all-powerful. And we have the conditions which we must be met if our prayers are to be answered. Now, I want us to look at these five conditions here briefly tonight. We saw in verses 36 and 37 how Elijah prayed in public. There's public prayer and private prayer. Public prayer is so very necessary. We are told to pray. And, to have, and we've given New Testament examples and Old Testament examples of public prayer. And it has its place. But private prayer is something all of us, not all of us will be engaged in public prayer in leading and actually practicing public prayer, but all of us are to be controlled by and filled with and preoccupied with private prayer. So first of all, I would like to, for us to look at that very fact, the privacy of his praying. Verse 42, look there, tells us that he went to the top of Carmel. That's an isolated place. That's away from the den and the noise and the, the traffic of people. Why? To get along with God. We see this same pattern given to us by our Lord. He went apart went up to, to pray, to get along with God, to enter his presence and to enter into what Hebrews 10, 19 t- describes as the holiest place. You remember the tabernacle of the temple? There was the holy place the holy of, and the holy of holies. And that holiest place where the very presence of God resides We must get away from the madness and the distractions around us to get along with God. Now, this can be done in a busy airport. This this is not necessarily, even though we have the language of Scripture, to go into your closet and lock the door. And that has its place. But I, I don't want you to think of the physicality of it as much as the inner part. You can retreat and go go into the Holy of Holies in a very public place. When you come before the Lord as a believer, taking Him at His word, and retreating there, that's what this is, this is talking about. Although it is good when you are having seasons of prayer to lay away all distractions as much as possible and find a place of secrecy. But I don't want anybody to ever think because I don't have a neat little prayer room with a little, you know, all those kinds of things. And I'm not making fun of that. I'm just saying that is not the 
the emphasis. We can have put so much emphasis on the mechanics of prayer, having a desk or a closet or a room and a Bible there, a list and all those things that we never get around to praying. You know, we've got everything, all the lights are on, but nobody's at home kind of situation. So you can get sidetracked on the mechanics of it, having a prayer notebook and all those things that are wonderful, but the, the actual praying and communing with God may, may go wanting, and, and we need to be careful about that. This privacy is not just physical. It refers to the calming of our spirit, the turning off of the computer, the phone, the iPad, the, those things that just clamor for our attention, the, the quieting of our flesh, the gathering in of all of our wandering thoughts, which is no small thing to do. We're all so distracted. And it's an art. It's actually it's a discipline to, to gather in our wandering thoughts, to focus in on actual praying. Because sometimes praying will turn into worry times. <laughs> what we begin to pray about, we begin to fret over. And it becomes, it's robbed of everything that it was supposed to have been so that we can be in a fit frame of mind to draw near and to talk to the Lord. We talk about the Lord most often when we should be talking to the Lord. The psalmist said, be still and know that I am God. There is a knowing of the Lord that can only come from solitude and silencing our lives before him, not only our mouths, but our minds and our beings, in our environment as much as possible so that we can hear the voice of the Lord through his word. The reason so much of our praying is not effective in this area of failing to shut the door is the discipline of private prayer. And that shutting of the door is closing out the world, not necessarily in a place, but coming before the Lord and purposefully thinking on these things, focusing on his word and the requests that we're making. The world around us is a mad, dashing rush, isn't it? A rush to nowhere. A merry-go-round, spinning, 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 going, going, going. At the end of the day, going no farther than where we started. And, and I'm sad to say that sometimes it's that way in our spiritual lives as well. We're rushing around and, and, and nothing is produced. No spiritual lasting fruit comes of it. Why? Because we've not shut out the world and privately earnestly come before the Lord. Secondly, not only the privacy of prayer, but we notice the physical position of prayer. Again, we could sidetrack on what is the correct posture for prayer. Verse 42 tells us, just happens to describe that Elijah, for his part, got down on the ground and put his face between his knees. He is showing abject humility uh, and coming before the Lord that he's unworthy and he has no, no right to come before him except that God has told him to. This is a, a sign of repentance and humility. Now, when Elijah confronted Ahab and stood before the false prophets, he carried himself with dignity and majesty because he was representing the king of kings and lord of lords. And he was standing erect and majestic. But now when he comes before the king of kings and lord of lords, what is, what is his attitude? This is a sense of humility, humility and a total dependency upon the Lord. We are ambassadors in public, and we are intercessors in private. Here, along with the Lord, he hides his face, and by his actions he shows his nothingness. Now, with that being said, is there a correct position of prayer? 
And you know as well as I do that not everyone, because of age or physical situations, could actually get in that position. So we'd be gone with the thought that unless you're in that exact position that your prayers will not be heard. We're just mentioning that because the Holy Spirit records it for us because it shows Elijah's attitude of heart. If you stand when someone enters a room or extends your hand or whatever, show deference to someone, all of that speaks of your position and, and you're honoring them. And that's what this is about. It's not a show because no one's there. He's alone, top of Mount Carmel. No one is watching Elijah, but the Holy Spirit records for us that he gets down as far as he can and puts his face on the ground. I would tell you that sometimes it, it is good to, to get in that position, especially when we're mourning and grieving over sin if we possibly can. But again, it's the attitude of the heart, isn't it? Your heart can go there if your body cannot go there. And, and so we come before him and say, Lord, uh, show me your glory and, and, and hear me and, and work in my heart. Isaiah tells us the seraphim do what? They veil their faces in his presence. And so we can come before him in reverence and humility. We, we never come um, in any other way before the Lord but in humility. Even when we're boldly claiming his promises, we humbly come before him because he's the king of kings and lord of lords and the giver and and the sustainer of all things. When our hearts are right before the Lord, the more we will be humbled by a sense of of unworthiness and and how can I be here in God's grace that he's allowed me to pray and and to have these resources and and the insignificance of us and what a privileged prayer is. When we study the scriptures, we, we notice various postures of prayer. So there's not one correct position. Uh, we, we see that men standing, people standing, uh, kneeling, people on their faces, lifting up holy hands, lying down. It's not so much, again, the physical posture as it is the attitude of humility and dependency. I remember our missionary, uh, Carolyn Harrington, with, with her myasthenia gravis, said there would be sieges of that, uh, even as a young mother, uh, of that disease when she was absolutely in bed and could, all she could do, she could move. The disease is a paralyzing disease at times. And uh, she could not do anything but, but communicate with the Lord. And, and she the, finally dawned on her, the Lord just wanted me to love him and to, to praise him and to pray. And that's all she could do is, is lay there in that capacity. I don't have any other resources. I don't have any magic tricks. I don't have any strings to pull. I don't have any uh, thing like that, but I have been invited by the King of Kings to come boldly before the throne of grace. And there is no contradiction here. We come boldly in Christ's name because of his work on the cross in our place. Because he prevailed in the garden for us, we're invited to come. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Then, then what follows is this, cast, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Before I cast my care upon him, I must humbly humble myself before him. If Moses was required, Moses the great lawgiver, one of the greatest patriarchs in the scriptures, if he was required to take off his shoes before he approached the burning bush, where God's Shekinah glory burned and appeared in his absolute glory, we too must humbly approach our our great God before we can come before him. The saved are redeemed and accepted in the beloved. We praise his name for that. But we are sinners saved by grace and we approach his throne humbly, reverently, repenting of all known sin. And so we notice 
his, his the place of his prayer, the privacy of his prayer, the position there, which is first and foremost a position of heart. But thirdly, we notice the premise of Elijah's prayer. What ground does he have? What right does he have? Why is he praying so specifically and for this exact request? He's asking for rain. He's not asking for... This is the, the subject of his prayer. I'm afraid that so often our prayers have no subject. It's like reading a paper a student has written, and you don't know what it's about. It's about everything and nothing. If you've gotten a letter from someone, and you, you, you don't know who it's from, they didn't sign their name, they, it just goes rambles on and on, and you're trying to make sense of it. Or uh, I got a text the other day from someone. I didn't know who the person was. I didn't know what they were talking about and how to respond to it. So what do you do with that? I'm afraid that some of our prayers are that way. And so we, we notice the premise of Elijah's prayer. He's asking for rain. Why? Because they needed it? Well, it's true they did, but that's not the greatest part of this, is it? That's not their greatest need. Their need was to see the, the righteous hand of God. And was, was it to show off in front of Ahab and the prophets to show I'm, I'm better than you are? No, that's not what the, the premise of, of Elijah's praying. Was it because he felt obligated due to his prayer to stop the rain? I better, okay, since I stopped the rain, I better pray that rain be restored. That's not what this is about. Elijah's prayer is based on the promise of God. And your prayers better be as well. Find the promises of God and pray them. Verse, chapter 18 and verse 1, if you go back there, God said this, I will send rain. When God says he will do something, guess what? He will do it. When Christ says, I will build my church, what is he doing? He's building his church. When Christ says, I will go and prepare a place for you, what can we rest assured that he's doing right now? He is preparing a place for us. And then what follows? If he says, I will go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again. We praise God for those I wills of the scriptures. And he said, I will send rain. Our part is to believe and to, to pray it and to ask him to do what he said he will do. Now, some could argue, well, if God is sovereign, and he is, and he says he's going to send rain, why bother? Because he tells us to. This is for us. It's to prove to us, yes, he does hear and answer prayer. Yes, his word is real. Elijah didn't assume to anything, and neither should we. God's promises are given to teach us what things to ask for? Because we don't know what to ask for as we ought. We? We, we don't know. It. Is that, that prayer that I read of the Puritan prayer at the beginning, uh, he, he stated, we really don't know, I don't, really don't know what to pray for, Lord. And it encourages us to ask in faith, believing so that we can see them answered. Ezekiel 36, verse 24 through 26, we see a whole string of promises that God makes to Israel. Just promise after promise after promise. But in verse 37, he summarizes all those promises with this. I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Isn't that remarkable? I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. But, God says, I have yet to be inquired of for the house of Israel to do this. Oh, what a, what a tragedy that is. That, that the house of Israel had not asked Jehovah to do those things that he said he would do. How sad it is for us as his bride, the church, not to ask him to do the same. When we claim the promises in prayer, we show that we believe them and that we appreciate his mercies and depend upon them alone. And that's why in our prayer bulletin we include promises. Tonight, James 5, 17, is the very promise that we're talking about. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. 
Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three and six months, three years and six months. The Holy Spirit has recorded that specifically to show us what God will do. Then I want you to notice that the plainness of Elijah's prayer. He didn't generalize. He particularized. What did he say there? The Bible tells us that uh, Elijah went up to Carmel. He cast himself upon the earth. He put his face between his knees, and he, 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 he prayed uh, to, to, toward heaven. For what? For rain. Very simple, very plain. Sometimes we pray with vague petitions. Have you ever heard such prayers that, that Lord save the lost, and you want to ask which lost? Uh, there's a whole kinds of lost people. Which ones are we specifically praying for? Or, or pray, bless the missionaries. We have on the back of your prayer bulletin, I hope that you will take clip this and put this in your prayer notebook or where, whatever, how you organize your prayer. Praying for missionaries, just to something to help guide you. Instead of just saying, bless the, 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 uh, Bill Patterson and his wife, pray that the missionaries may be kept from temptation. That's a very specific request because all people are tempted, aren't they? Pray that they may be kept from the powers of darkness. Satan doesn't want that, that missionary to be where they are. And so he is going to do everything he can to thwart them. That's a specific thing we're to ask for. Pray for young missionaries to be kept from sickness, especially in the tropical areas or areas where they're not used to there. There's all kinds of fever and things that, that they're susceptible to, the food, the water. That's, many of our missionaries live in areas that that, that that is an applicable prayer. Pray that the power of God may accompany their witness. Almost every prayer letter that we receive from them say, Pray that the gospel will have fruit, that we'll have the power of the Holy Spirit in what we do. Pray that the believers may be led into the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Pray that the missionaries may be kept from violence. We, uh, we have missionaries serve in, in hostile areas, that they be kept free from that. Pray that they may be kept from unreasonable and wicked men. Pray for the edification of the national church. Pray that young converts may receive a thorough training in Bible schools. Pray that missionaries may have wisdom to do their work well in view of the imminent return of Christ. And then pray that their children's hearts. I always pray for our missionaries' children. I always pray for Christian workers' children because Satan's fiery darts are aimed at them. And while their parents are laboring in the vineyard of the Lord, their hearts can be called away and, and taken away from the things of God. And we pray that for all of our children, but specifically for these who've offered themselves to serve in a different culture away from home and family and friends, pray that their children's hearts be turned toward the Lord and his work and not be embittered toward him for their parents' sacrifices and choices. And that's something that we have to, it's a very real potential. And uh, they're not exempt from that. And so we're to ask these, these things. And those are just something that will help us, guide us in our praying there. Well, so we see his praying, his, how plain it was. Someone has said that letters that don't require answers usually don't get a response. If you get an email that's just a statement or a com comment but doesn't ask you something or request something, you may not respond to it. And so uh, our request before the Lord ought to ask something, a biblical request. Jesus' prayers were all filled with definite requests. You pray for the great high priest. You, you read the great high priestly prayer, what he prayed for his disciples and for us. Paul's the same way. And when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he answered them in a very literal way in Luke 11, verse 5, Which of you shall have a friend and shall go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread? That's pretty specific. 
even the illustration that he gives them about prayer has within it specific that the three loaves of prayer is given there because they're asking for something literally that they need. If you go and ask somebody, I need some bread, what would be the response? How, many, how much do you need? If you go to the grocery store, I, I need some food. Well, that's the, what? You know, if somebody asks you, go by the store and get me some milk. How much milk? Get me some eggs. How many, you know, get me some items. What? What do you want me to get? And so our prayer is the same way. Lord, this is what we need for this hour. And that's why these prayer meetings, and we give these prayer bulletins out to kind of guide our praying to know what to ask for. But not only was Elijah's prayer private, and his posture was humble, and he was filled with, the prayer was filled with definite promises, it was pointed in his request. And then we see his persistence. Now, we, the, the, the persistence of our praying is to keep on praying. The old-timers would use the phrase, praying through. Now, sometimes that may have a connotation that, that, that it may be um, confusing, but I think we all know that it means persevering in praying. Don't, don't let up. Keep on praying. The Bible term for it is importunity. The psalmist said in Psalm 130, verse 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord, my soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. And I say more than they that watch for the morning. That watcher is a guard or sentry on the watchtower looking for the first rays of the sun to, to sound the trumpet for the morning sacrifice. His job was to watch, and the first ray of the sun that would come, he would sound the trumpet for the morning sacrifice. And that's how we should wait before the Lord. James tells us he prayed earnestly. If I come to you and I'm in desperate need of your help, I will earnestly, can you help me? I've got to have some help to carry this thing, or I've got to be there by 5 o'clock. We're, we're, we're clear, we're plain, we, we make the request with emotion. It's not, well, if you can, I don't know, I'm supposed to be there, if I, maybe, I don't know when, but can you just, if it doesn't seem important to us, it's certainly not going to be seem important to the person that we're asking to help, and we're probably not going to get the help we need. They're not, they're not convinced that we're even going to do the thing anyway if we're vague. Remember that prayer is described as seeking and knocking and crying and asking and striving. Those are clear, zealous words. If you're seeking for something, if someone lost the a, a, a setting out of their ring and they knew it was here when the service started and after the service we'd all be looking around and seeking and searching, that's the words that are given for prayer. Knocking until somebody comes to the door. If something was on, the house was on fire and you knew people were in there and you're trying to rouse them, you'd beat the door down. You'd do whatever you could. That, that zealousness of being heard. Jacob wrestled with the Lord in prayer. Uh, Genesis 32, verse 26, he says, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. David panted and poured out his heart before the Lord. Hebrews 5, 7 says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with strong cryings and tears. When is the last time you prayed like that? With strong cryings and tears. It is, after all, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. Could we say the opposite? The insipid, lackluster praying of a righteous man availeth what? Little. If, if the effectual, fervent prayer availeth much... What wouldn't avail much? Boring, lifeless, unmoved prayer, going through the rigmarole, 
Colossians 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer. That word continue means what? Don't stop. Persevere and watch in the same with thanksgiving. We see there in uh, verse 43 what the scripture says. He said to his servant, go. He's praying, but he's expecting the, the rain to come. It's interesting that he says, now go look. Go see if it's here. He said to his servant, go up now and look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there's nothing. He said, go again. Go get till seven times. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Reminds us of going around Jericho. It reminds us of so many. Often we hear, see that word seven there. Now, it's not a magical formula. When the disciple came and asked the Lord, how many times do we forgive somebody? Uh, seven times? What did he say? No, seven times 70. It's, it means on and on, really. We see it all. It is the sign of perfection. But he's telling his servant, you go if it takes seven times because he was so convinced that the Lord was going to send the, send the rain and uh, he, he's going to keep on until the Lord sends it. He says, there's nothing. Did that stop Elijah from praying? He had all these promises from the Lord. He'd claimed them. He was convinced that God wanted to answer and the servants came back and said, no, no, no there's not even a cloud. There's nothing. To that, that, to most people, or many of us, we just say, okay, well, I guess the Lord's not going to do it. Let's just go home. No. He said, well, go back. Go back seven times. We're to make sure our request is based on a divine promise and then wait in faith on God's time to answer it. Even though Elijah wasn't answered immediately, he kept on praying, and we should. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry, the psalmist said. Isaiah thirty eighteen. Therefore will the Lord wait that he may be gracious unto you. It is for our good that he waits. God cannot break his word. In verse 45, we see the picture there. I just alluded to it. Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. What a picture. Ahab was con- convinced but not converted. It seems strange, but there are many like that with religion in their head. They know it's true. They've seen the proof, like those that are written to in the Hebrews, where he says, go on, into perfect, go on into salvation and resting in the Lord. Ahab could not deny that there was a God in heaven. And he rode to Jezreel to see the blessing of the Lord, but he was not a converted believer as Elijah was. So many people have facts in their heads, but not in their heart convinced that the gospel is true that there is a savior he does save sinners but they're not and that christ is mighty to save but yet they've not come to him to trust him themselves the hand of the lord was on elijah we saw on sunday that god was with uh, joseph the lord was with joseph here we see the hand of the lord was upon elijah you can offer whatever you want But I'll take that blessing over every other blessing that you could strive for. The hand of the Lord. That's the power of the Lord. The might of the Lord. When you put your hand on someone, you do that with tenderness or direction or authority or or to aiding them. The hand of the Lord is a sign of all that he can do and is. The hand of the Lord was on Elijah. But Elijah just didn't sit idle and said, okay, well, I'm through. No, he girded up his loins. There's work to do. Because the hand of the Lord is upon Elijah, then he girds up his loins, and he runs before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. Wouldn't you have liked to have seen Ahab's face when he got there? 
there was the prophet Elijah. What is it about this guy? You see, we ought to live in such a way that not to look for that kind of thing, but that the law should be convinced there is a God in heaven. And he, that the effectual fervent prayers of a righteous man availeth much. Let me ask you, in your workplace or in your family or uh, wherever it may be, are you the, the one that people would call upon to, to pray for pressing needs? Would they be convinced that you would even take their needs before the throne of grace? Well, we have much to pray for tonight. May the Lord give us his grace as we, we come tonight.